we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. We want them talking trash to Goliath. We want them building a boat and collecting animals. Everybody thinks they're crazy, and they are. I'm your huckleberry. I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Behold, a pale horse. The man who sat on him was death. And hell followed with him. Can you read, my son? Well, that depends. Can you go fight in the shade? Repent or perish. You know your places. God be with you all. All for all and one for one, then, I guess. Stone Mountain Media. Ail to the King. Well, we are uh, here. Sugar Sean and I are here to answer some questions that we answered previously, but had some technical difficulties. Technical difficulties. So we're running it back and going to give better answers to the same questions as before. Your listeners always lucky when there's technical difficulties because it means we get to improve. Yeah, usually it's uh, like mental deficiencies and difficulties or theological ones that we're dealing with. So it it was kind of a new experience to have a technological difficulty. In light of that technological difficulty, I was thinking about like a different Tourette's joke I can make in light of uh, uh-huh. Jeff Durbin's recent sermon. <laughs> and then I, I thought, you know, Sean told me not to. I probably shouldn't. <laughs> you know, people wouldn't get my Tourette's joke, making fun of cripples and whatever. But don't worry. Come down the line, you're going to get a Tourette's episode. Before then, doing some cues for your A's. So, Sean, first question. Uh, first one I remember, I don't think we didn't have any of the questions that made it onto the, the podcast, correct? Affirmative. Okay. So first question we were talking about, was, heard, <laughs> heard, uh, let's talk about children's books. We had a question about children's books, whether or not we're okay with them, uh, being written by women. And let's talk about children's Bibles while we're at it. You want to do that in this segment? We're going to get it in time on this segment. Yes. Okay. You want to go first? Go ahead. Okay. So should women write children's books? Correct. Okay. Uh, so we want to approach this question not dismissively in either direction, either of course or of course not. You want to come, come at it theologically, okay? And so when I got any kind of question about instruction uh, I w- and pertaining to men and women, I want to go to the texts that give me a framework for thinking through matters of instruction for men and women. So so you have, so the dynamics you're dealing with there, you have uh, command for a woman not to have authority over a man to teach a man, First Timothy 2, and then you have Titus, Titus 2, which tells you uh, that there's a teaching that women are to be a part of, but it's a specific kind of teaching, namely uh, teaching to other women, and even that teaching is not uh, primarily like a theology proper type of teaching, but more of a practical theology. How do, how do we live as, as women? Yeah, so it's really popular in quote-unquote complementarian circles for uh, really sharp gals to be marketed by Crossway to write 
just regular theology books for the church and because they put flowers or a particular color scheme on the cover, somehow it's for women. But that kind of theology, God made women to get from men. That's supposed to come from men. Uh, churchmen and husbands and fathers. Uh, so, you know, I don't have a particular stone to throw at Gloria Furman, but it's not her job to be writing theology books for, you know, it's marketed for women, but it's just a theology proper. But the curriculum that women have been assigned by God to teach other women is very much specifically about uh, how to be a good wife, how to be a good mother, and to manage your household well. So it's home economics, it's motherhood, and it's wifery, which is not witchcraft. It's wifery. Gotcha. And then the other thing we would, we would want to look at carefully is and recognize is uh, a husband is going to be putting forward the the theology of his home. He's going to be uh, establishing his family theology. And in that, there's going to be a carrying out by the wife in the day-to-day with the kids. So the husband's going to be going to work. He establishes that stuff uh, with his wife and with his kids in family worship. But his wife is going to be doing a lot of the carrying of that out in the day-to-day. We chose there's a spot to record this this Q and A. We're sitting right in front of a construction site. <laughs> Speaking of technological, so last time it was technological difficulties. This time it's technological deficiencies slash mental deficiencies. <laughs> we got a circular saw every thirty seconds. Just <laughs> so and and so connecting what Sean just said with Titus two, uh, you know, older women. Part of what they're teaching younger women to do is to practically uh, carry out their husband's theology game plan for the family. You know, so the the husband sets the course for his family, the theology for his family, the culture he wants to, to establish. But then he's out working in the fields and his wife is at home and, and she needs to be the kind of woman that he can entrust to really do a lot of the nurturing and and a lot of the hands-on work of building that culture while he's gone, of imparting that theology while he's gone. She's going to be doing a lot of catechizing and a lot of theological instruction with her children uh, so that her children receive the theology of her husband. And so while women are not to be teachers of a sort, the job of motherhood requires a heavy dose of instruction and theological instruction. In light of that, we, if we're trying to attach those truths to the specific question of women writing children's book it, books and you know particularly Christian focused children's books. Uh, right. If you've got a wife who's particularly competent at carrying out her husband's wishes with her children and instructing them in the fear and admonition of the Lord and raising them up uh, into into that culture and she's so competent so as to be able to write that down effectively in a way that helps other mothers do that and do that consistently uh with their respective you know husbands game plans you know and whatnot then we would say that those kinds of books are fine to be written by women you know in that kind of context that it's it's mothers doing the work of motherhood and helping one another do the work of motherhood you know you don't want to go the route of uh independently crafting christian stories that really make jesus somewhat of a eunuch 
right, or androgynous, right? And that's, that's why it's important to be instructing in the context of your husband's leadership. But then we're just talking about uh, motherhood and mothers helping mothers. Right, yeah. So I think that's a, a consistent way to look at uh, how we do that. We talked a little bit about uh, Bibles as well, and we, we put forward the idea that uh, while we'd be okay with uh, children's books, even Bible storybooks, as we talked about, uh, you know, stories, uh, stories from the Bible, but, uh, not calling it a Bible per se, uh, making sure that in our home, the Bible's a thing. It's an established thing. Uh, it's what we read from in family worship. So our kids don't have a separate Bible from us. So while, while children's storybooks can be beneficial, uh, you know, just like you'd want to bring color to those stories for your kids when they're younger uh, to put that into a book form you know, we would say would not be affirmative action baby <laughs> would not be incorrect but uh, we would be against you know children's bibles per se and uh, good luck finding uh, a children's bible uh, if, if you're talking about pictures without uh, images of Jesus uh, something that isn't uh, directly blasphemous and uh, violating the second commandment right because Jesus is kind of central to the scriptures and, and just to be clear we're making a distinction between you know, some some lady or guy taking a story from the Bible and, uh, you know, putting it into book form in a way that honors the second commandment and, right. it, you know, is still a, a well-crafted story with, with well-executed artwork. Uh, we're distinguishing that from something presented as a Bible. That's right. So with that, we'll, uh, we'll go to a quick break and uh, hit some more questions when we come back. Back from break... On a Moscow starry night, smoking some good cigars. Here with Sugar, seeing shooting stars. And we're back to continue answering your questions. So what is the the next question we're going to take up and answer Sugar? So to keep with the theme, we talked a little bit in the first segment about uh, how we should think about women authors. uh, As a quick recap, looking at... uh, Oh, it's windy out here. Looking at... uh, looking at, you know, wanting to recognize what we're, uh, want to call our women to, which is, uh, rich discipleship in the home led by fathers. And in light of that, uh, certainly seeing a place for, for women to be authoring books. And so we had a question regarding how women should interact with men in evangelism. So kind of a twofold question for you, Dave, uh, to kick us off here in the second segment. Uh, firstly, uh, let's think about how people think through the workplace uh, so how should a woman uh, interact with a man in the workplace in terms of evangelism? Let's say she's the only Christian in a, in a work context and she has an opportunity to, to share the gospel. How should she handle that? And then uh, let's think about uh, street evangelism. So in our context, in terms of what that looks like, uh, we have men who preach the word, uh, but oftentimes we have women out there. We're happy to have women out there. What should their role be? How should they think through the way that they're handling those situations? So, you know, let's say you're a single gal, Christian, in the workforce, and there are Christian men that you work with, then, uh, you know, you are in a very unique space to encourage those men to sack up and own evangelistic opportunities. But let's say uh, you don't have Christian men there, and an evangelism opportunity just falls in your lap. Guy or girl, take it. Take it. Give them the gospel. 
you know, speak as a woman. Don't speak as a man to men. Speak as a woman to men, but give them the gospel. It's a straightforward thing. So, but I think one of the reasons it's worth saying is because even in a in a heart of wanting to honor uh, clear mandates God has given for men to be men and women to be women, uh, it's not abnormal to question every interaction now in terms of making sure that you're rightly ordering the way that you're handling situations. So that, that that's a good inclination, but don't allow that to trump just the, the beauty of the gospel going forth, the necessity of the gospel going forth. If God's put you in that place, uh, take advantage of it, preach the gospel. Now, I ain't saying get up and give a speech right. to your entire company, but you know, Aquila and Priscilla, guy and gal took an opportunity to instruct Apollos when he was airing in his teaching and uh and so you're gonna have a whole host of private informal opportunities at work that come up and uh you know get in there and, and share the gospel right just as you wouldn't just as you shouldn't hesitate you know around the dinner table when you're having a couple over to to talk to talk theology to talk about uh what god's doing in your lives or encourage uh brothers and sisters and what's going on in their lives admonish rebuke uh same thing goes for you know those workplace environments those private informal settings yeah, where there's a guy, defer and encourage, and where there's not, hit a home run. Cool. That makes sense. And then uh, tackle kind of more the, the street evangelism side of things, how women should be thinking through that kind of stuff. Yeah, so we've you know, had a number of opportunities in, in San Diego where we've gone to the street to preach, whether at the beach or at Planned Parenthood. And, and I can speak to both of those situations anecdotally as I highlight a principle, but you know, at the beach... Uh, a lot of times it was just me and, and some fellas and I would preach and the guys would be there handing out tracks, talking to folks, trying to, you know, basically I'd kick up interest and they'd pick up the conversations. That's the dynamic. And one time a guy was there and his wife was there and she was a pretty gal. And I tell you what, we had way, you know, in terms of the number of guys stopping to talk to somebody in our crew, our number was the highest it had ever been that evening great preaching i assume yeah oh it was a great sermon no i mean th- these guys were interested in talking to a pretty girl and uh, she wanted to talk about jesus they were going to talk about jesus in order to talk to a pretty girl and uh <laughs> what's what's highlighted there is you know uh you can get a guy to talk to you because you're pretty right uh, but leave the fellas to the fellas. The fellas need to hear something from a fella in that kind of context. Not just from a fella, but as a fella to a fella. And there's going to be plenty of gals, you know, especially at the beach, right? You got a gal not wearing any clothes. Hey, I, I can and I do talk to women in any kind of evangelistic uh, situation I'm in. But if she's going to be naked in front of me, it's easier if you're talking to her lady. Because you're not going to be tempted by her nakedness. Yeah. Affirmative. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you take it to Planned Parenthood then, we got guys and girls. Again, you know, the girls aren't preaching. Girls aren't on the mic. They're not, they're not doing the uh, declarative work. Uh, but we've got girls doing, you know, not only praying constantly while we're there, that God would bless the preaching of the word. Uh, but they're there with their children. They're there waving at passers-by. Again, that's just drawing attention, drawing people to what's happening. They're holding signs, passing out tracks. And then we've got some girls even stopping ladies as they're driving into Planned Parenthood to, to talk with them. And, you know, whether or not the girls stop because they think the girl is is working at Planned Parenthood or because, you know, she's more approachable, uh, you know, a lady is necessarily just 
less oppositional as a woman. Uh, those, those girls get a, gr- a lot of great conversations going, uh, and it requires a ton of boldness, a ton of courage, and, and a ton of doctrinal sharpness to do that well. So, uh, you know, as a woman, don't seek to make your ministry going and talking to men. Pray that God would put men in your life to do that, right? If, it, if an opportunity falls in your lap, take it. Don't be doing declarative ministry stuff. Uh, talk to women. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so another question we had, uh, we've had, we've done an episode in the past and then talked about it here and there. It's, it's come up, uh, the, the idea of fruitfulness. Uh, we want to be proponents of fruitfulness in all of the Christian life. God wants to see fruit in our lives in every area. Uh, but when we did our episode on fruitfulness and really the, you know, the sticking point that most people aren't going to have a, any kind of pushback on the, the broad idea of fruitfulness, but we want to apply that straightforwardly to the marriage bed. And that means what you think it means, uh, be fruitful and multiply and don't put a, uh, a limit on that in, in your own wisdom. So, uh, you know, don't have the number three in your head and then, and then say, well, you know, Providing for my family means, you know, having enough money to put all my kids through a typical four-year university. And if I don't have that, then I know that it's not God's will for me to have more children. Uh, God declares that children are a blessing. Blessed is the one whose uh, quiver is full. And so uh, entrust that to God. Be prayerful. Know that uh, for it to be the blessing that, it's, that it can be and ought to be, uh, it's going to require a lot of prayer and a lot of hard work on your part and the blessing of God uh, ultimately, but that's what we believe God calls uh, men and women to in marriage: be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, uh, and entrust that work to God. He opens and closes wombs. Uh, with that, and with no caveat on the heart behind that, uh, we have had questions, and I think it's a good thing to clarify in terms of uh, any exceptions we would have uh, to that that mandate of fruitfulness. And what that would look like. So do you have any thoughts off the bat on that? Yeah, so I uh, I do have an exception, but I have not as broad of an exception as people might want. Um, so a, a lot of times uh, people are going to bring up either financial uh, issues, financial concerns, or health concerns as what they want to make their, their exception. And, you know, with, with finances... Don't confuse fear and lack of faith for wisdom. Uh, God says to believe that he will care for you more than he cares for the lilies and the sparrows. So if you're not believing that, then I just want to point you back to the Bible and call you to faith. Now, with health, again, my, my exception regarding health issues is not as broad as people want because fundamental to motherhood is a sacrificial giving of yourself to bring life into this world, to nurture and grow and beautify that life unto godliness in Christ. That's motherhood. And especially post-fall, that requires toil and blood and sweat and pain. It, It requires suffering to do motherhood and motherhood is a woman's highest calling so if someone points to health difficulties i'm saying of course furthermore 
there are a whole host of pregnancy problems that arise that people want to just kind of tap out of, right? And, you know, we, when we first addressed this question, the recording didn't work, we, we brought up the topic of ectopic pregnancies. You know, a lot of times people think of ectopic pregnancies where an embryo implants in the fallopian tubes and not in the womb as a situation where the baby can't live and unless the baby's aborted, the mother can't live. And that's just not the case. Not only are there a number of things medically that can be done, uh, you know, I got, I got a friend uh, via Facebook who gave me a whole host of documents telling me all about this uh, when I first thought that maybe ectopic pregnancies were my one exception clause to my oh, position on abortion. Sure. And she just loaded me up with science that I was completely ignorant of and basically very politely in a, in a womanly way told me I was being an idiot. And I, I, I thank you, uh, Mama uh, Claghorn for that. What a last name. That's her last name, not her first name, I assume. Yeah, I, I don't actually know how to pronounce her last name, but that's my go at pronouncing her last name. Better last name than a first name. It wouldn't be a good first name. <laughs> but it's a great last name. She got it from her husband. And uh, <laughs> she got a bunch of kids, loves children, and sorted me out uh, on that situation. Uh, but even even apart from all those medical things, uh, you know, your fellow elder, yeah. my pastor in San Diego, was an ectopic pregnancy. Yeah, one of, one of my best friends and his mom are a testimony to, you know, his mom's still alive. He's he's alive. He was yeah, and he's small and, and feeble and, and weak because yeah, of it. But impotence, impotence in your child and future, you know, man, if you want to call him that, is no reason to, uh, no reason to kill him. Yeah, his, his life still matters. <laughs> Zach, your life is still valuable. Doesn't matter how small you are, brother. Your life still matters. It matters. So anyway, uh, you know, physical difficulties. We want to say, you know, okay, is is blood and danger and risk at stake here? Well, of course it is. And uh, if one day I get married, I am willing to die for my kids. And assumed is my wife's willingness to die for my kids. If there's a fire in the house without even having to deliberate with my wife, we're saving the kids at risk of harm to ourselves. It's just what we do. It's what we signed up for in marriage. Um, and if that's what does us part, may it be a glorious end. Now, there are some physical debilitations. It's yeah. on, the, on the fly, so if, if you don't feel comfortable answering it, you don't need to. But uh, do you feel uh, in that kind of role... My inclination is to, I'd rather leave my wife outside and just get all the kids myself uh, to protect her as well. What do, you, what do you think about that? How would you kind of handle that dynamic? I mean, I guess the picture you're drawing there is like, there's so many kids, we got to both go in and grab a bunch of them. Uh, my thought would be, yeah, yeah. I'm keeping my wife outside. That's, that's, I would say that's almost, that's my primary responsibility is, is her. And then. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm, you know. It's a hypothetical, so I, I recognize it's a hypothetical, but I'm just, it made me think of it. So I, Yeah, well, I'm a fan of the guy going into a burning building and getting the kids. Uh, what I meant was if you were like... Uh, I didn't know how much your complementarianism was playing into the way that was handled. Because yeah. the Bible doesn't address directly how men and women should address burning buildings and getting kids out. So, Right, I, I'm thinking more of a situation where we are both, we both find ourselves in a crisis yeah. where we are at danger and our kids are at danger and our first priority instinctively. Now I might have the additional priority of my wife's safety, but my wife is not thinking about her safety over and against the sure. children's yeah, safety. Yeah, yeah. Our joint concern is where are the kids? Where are our kids? Are they okay? What do we need to do? And then 
then my my job corporately is to get them all out. Right. Cool. So I, I'm not letting my wife run into a burning building. So in case that need to be stated, go look at our Instagram page and we, we address that. Um, so no women, no women firefighters. But anyway, you know, th- there are physical debilitations in a broken world that means suffering and that can mean uh, barrenness, not as something that's pursued or, or chosen, but it's something that's brought upon a married couple uh, as a storm in life, as a trial. You know, I think of a friend whose wife uh, he's a good husband. He's married to a woman who who has a heart condition that makes them unable to get pregnant like a, a a normal married couple, and so they have multiple children, but through adoption. And so I don't think that they are sinning like you know hip evangelicals who read some you know cool book about adoption and now intentionally sterilize themselves and adopt instead because it's a better picture of the gospel. They're not in that situation. They're dealing with it with a trial as, as best they can. And there's a whole host of situations that may arise that have to be dealt with case by case. My disposition is fruitfulness with the assumed risk of death every time you get pregnant. Uh, and then taking case by case, situations as they may arise right and, and one thing that's i think's developed for for us and in, in thinking about this is you know there's obviously a, a high level of ignorance on our part in terms of where where that medical necessity uh may come about and a, a recognition that that is a case-by-case thing and needs to be addressed as it comes about but but in that one thing that that ignorance reminds us of is the importance of uh christians pursuing every discipline and uh, a reminder of the blessing to have a truly Christian doctor. Uh, my wife and I have, you know, been chastised on the back end of a, a miscarriage, and I'm, I mean, immediately so uh, for you know seeking to have another child too quickly. And uh, we have other friends who uh, just had a child and were uh, told halfway through that pregnancy the child was born with. Uh, some of the, their small intestines outside of their stomach, and we're told very on that uh, the best course of action was abortion. Uh, they didn't consider it for a second. Had the child. She's a beautiful little girl. Uh, intestines were put back in within moments, you know, minutes, hours of birth, and she's home and healthy much quicker than expected. Uh, so praise God for that. Uh, that's a testimony to God's grace and the foolishness of the wicked. And so in that, uh, for that same couple, a couple who loves children, who has a heart for having as many children as the Lord would bless them with, uh, they've been told that they need to wait a certain amount of time before having another kid uh, or else the next one will be their last one just physically. There's no possibility beyond that. And so that could be true and we recognize that as such, but also recognize that we're hearing it from the exact same person who just told them to abort their kid or at least the same cohort of people, right? And so... Uh, it's hard to trust that, and rightfully so, because uh, the unbelieving world, the unbelieving medical world, doesn't deserve a lot of trust in that category. And so, although we recognize, so we're as we're saying, you know, we want a consistent heart uh, for fruitfulness, with a recognition that case by case there's going to be things to deal with, and then we need to do our due diligence to find Christian doctors. So, would the Lord raise up Christian doctors in our congregation uh, so that we could have uh, a faithful? Uh, man or woman to look to 
and uh, and get sound counsel on on how to handle these situations well. Because sure, maybe there is a season where we have to where a couple has to wait uh, for the sake of further fruitfulness, and so that being the end. Uh, but I know that's not the end that a lot of these unbelieving doctors want, and so it's really hard to it's hard to take that word and and treat it like like gospel, treat it like good sound counsel uh, that's actually, you know, based on a reverence, a fear of God, a desire to obey him. So would the, ra- would the Lord raise up for us uh, more Christian doctors and would we be diligent to, to seek that out? And that, that touches um, a couple things. One, the importance of having a good Protestant theology of vocation where uh, you know, because when, when I was coming up through the ranks in college, there was explicit ministry and then there was other things, you know, secondary pursuits. But if you really wanted to pursue uh, maximal dedication to Christ, it had to be an explicit ministry. And that's just not the case. Yeah. We need men of sharp aptitude. And I said men who, who pursue uh, medical degrees and we need women who are sharp women uh, who are midwives and doulas. And and then it also touches another idea. So the second thing is, as the West continues into paganism, the importance of local church within itself networking and creating its own economy, and then churches to churches cooperating in firm association and networking, uh, that, that becomes all the more important too. So, you know, there's a really good doctor, family medicine doctor in Moscow, Idaho, Story Family Medicine. And and I think it's the same guy who was like a top doctor at a top hospital. He got fired because he refused to flip peckers for his job, or at least to sign off on flipping peckers. And, you know, that guy, now it's putting a lot on his lap, but it's it's it's, it's a broader thing that needs to be done by Christian doctors and churches need to help facilitate it. Uh, just like I can go online or I can reach out to a church and ask for church recommendations, it would be a, a very practical, legitimate blessing if he were to know of other like-minded doctors, family medicine doctors, you know, in, let's say, the Northwest or the West Coast, that people could reach out to him and then get a recommendation. Um, you know, I was talking recently to a, a brother from the Patriarchy podcast who was saying that he thinks churches are going to have to take a more active role as the West dissolves into paganism and feminism further and further in helping men and women find one another in marriage to play a heavier role in matchmaking and then networking church to church in that endeavor, knowing that families are foundational to rebuilding society from the ashes. You know, a church with a bunch of single gals and a church with a bunch of single guys taking it upon themselves to know their congregants and then to wisely help facilitate you know, relationship starting. The same principle goes with family medicine in the pursuit of fruitfulness in a culture that loves death right. in a culture that's not replacing itself because they hate God and his image bearers. Yeah. Uh, do you have any other questions you want to address? Well, I think, I think we can go to break uh, and come back and pick up more. Sure. Uh, before we go to break, you know, we're looking up, I've been in San Diego so this is the most stars I've seen in a while, and it's a reminder of it's a reminder of the promises of God. So when you think about fruitfulness, uh, don't think about fruitfulness like a grit your teeth and uh, and make it happen as if obedience does something other than bring life. 
Obedience brings life and God promises great blessings. He promised Abraham that his descendants would be uh, greater than the the stars up in the sky. And I can't count the stars I'm looking at now. And I'm, I'm, there's lights on in the backyard. I can't even see all the stars. Uh, it's a, it's a glorious reality. Uh, the gospel's beautiful. God promises blessings upon covenant children. Uh, and so would we, would we be fruitful, uh, multiply and raise our children to, to fear the Lord, to glorify his name. All right, we're back. And, uh, we want to finish with a question that's come up recently, particularly, in light of uh, the recent Jeff Dur- Durbin sermon at the Fight Laugh Feast conference, he was condemning uh, the Marxism that's risen up in the ranks of the evangelical church and speaking prophetically against it, much much like uh, Ezekiel preached against the sin and idolatry of the people of God of his day. Uh, and in that sermon... He called what was being taught and promoted and given space to grow in the evangelical church, he called it bullshit. So he, he used language that uh, w- would fit within the category of cuss words, right? Now, so the question has been posed to us, what do we think of that kind of language uh, and why? Do you want to give any thoughts to it or do you want me to throw out some thoughts and then have your response then? Your first thought was kind of established when you compared Jeff Durbin to Ezekiel. So I think people know you're... <laughs> you're uh, let me... Let me I'll, I'll give you a, a couple things and then you can interact with me. First of all, okay. uh, bullshit is mild in comparison to what we actually find the prophets saying against the idolatry of the people. It's mild in the sense that what they say, the language they use, is far more descriptive... Uh, and punchy. So, you know, in Ezekiel itself, uh, we, we basically have language uh, where, you know, the, the sin, the desire for the people of God to participate in the idolatry of the surrounding society it is likened to them wanting the issue of a horse within them, wanting a, a, a donkey's penis and the issue of a horse to fill them, Right. Now that's, it's, about the, it's about the raunchiest image imagery you could uh, you, you picture. Right. Yeah. It it, it is raunchiness itself. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Good luck with a straight face preaching that text. First of all, in any evangelical church today, but second of all, to a congregation that includes your grandma. Uh, we're we're talking about very descriptive language from Ezekiel that's meant to smack you upside the head for your sin. Uh, and, and when you, th- yeah, when you compare bullshit to that, it's, it, we're not even in the same category, but furthermore, you know, culturally I'm from a, at least, a, a cultural line, you know, they wouldn't be down with tobacco, alcohol, tattoos, gambling, cussing, right? Now we're smoking cigars. I drink alcohol at a casino. Yeah, not a fan of gambling, <laughs> unsure about tattoos. But regarding cussing, you know, for the longest time, I, I wasn't down, wasn't down at all for cussing. Now, I mean, if I was playing sports, I'm not, I'm not pretending that I didn't say certain things when I was playing sports. Uh, but I, I wouldn't have defended it for a long time. Uh, I listened to a podcast episode 
that's it, really similar to what he wrote in article form from Paul Maxwell, where he was defending cuss words, giving a, a philosophy of cuss words, really in the context of philosophy of language. He, and in the, in the podcast episode, uh, you know, again, Paul Maxwell, uh, he broke down different kinds of language. So he talked about immoral language. So immoral language, we're talking about language that either explicitly takes the the name of the Lord in vain uh, or language that's crafted to celebrate sin, right? As being immoral, fundamentally immoral. There's no productive fruit that could come from the use of this. There's the veneration of sin, what God calls evil, or just the explicit blasphemy of his name. But he talks about another category of language, and it's a category that he says is often conflated in Christian circles with immoral language, and that's inflective language. And inflective language is a category of language that's going to be present no matter what language we're speaking that is uh, constantly evolving, uh, not constantly, but it's regularly evolving slang that exists to provide emphasis to speech. And it's going, to be, it's going to be more prevalently used in male context, in context where you're trying to motivate, where you're trying to highlight, where you're trying to mock. Uh, but it functions like a verbal highlighter or thick underliner of speech. And it's in that category of inflective language that Paul Maxwell argues, quote unquote, cuss words uh, find their home. That they're slang words that are not inherently uh, immoral words venerating sin or blaspheming God that are used to emphasize speech. And so uh, explicitly going to be productive in certain contexts like motivating guys to give you that much more effort in some kind of physical trial, sports or whatnot, getting guys to give you more hustle on the job in a blue-collar context, uh, mocking in a friendly or an antagonistic way. Um, and, and I found, he, he made the argument and I, and I found it persuasive. So my, my, my argument uh, for cuss words broadly is that they're inflective speech with utility uh, in language that is determined by context. You know, so not going to use it around grandma, right? Not going to use it at the dinner table. Uh, but there is going to be context where it, it is of use. And then specifically to the question about Jeff Durbin, the condemnation, the assault on sin and complacency, it does produce extra punch. It does make extra note. It's not just intended to be hip and cool Mark Driscoll like Durbin's genes, but it actually has something productive to, to accomplish verbally. What do you think about that? I think I'm tracking with what you're saying, and uh, it makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, one one pushback I have, or I guess a question that you could maybe speak to, is I, I, I didn't grow up a Christian, so I certainly it resonates with me just on a human level when I think about uh, being in a sports context and needing to be riled up or uh, excited and customers being used in that context not to tear down in any way, but to build up and to uh, be an encouragement or uh, a rebuke with more force that's meant to ultimately build up and you know lead to a better second half of a game, that kind of thing. You're playing bad defense. You're not being a man. You're not boxing out, getting rebounds, doing the hard stuff. 
And so sometimes extra force, which can, which needs to be communicated with words oftentimes, uh, it's going to be enforced by that. Uh, as you were talking about it, I was thinking about the examples we have biblically. And it seems like we have a very consistent theme biblically of uh, rebukes uh, to uh, certainly to nations uh, who are uh, delving into to serious idolatry and then to, uh, you know, you see Jesus to the Pharisees using very strong language, harsh language, uh, Paul to those, uh, who are, uh, undermining the gospel using harsh language. And so oftentimes it seems like the coarse language, scripturally speaking is, is reserved, uh, for enemies of the gospel. How, how would you, how would you interact with that? Yeah. Uh, so I'm a regular principle guy, so I want justification you know, for anything uh, right. in the Bible, ultimately to be able to root to the Bible. But I, in my regular principle, I, I have that category of good and necessary consequence, right? So the first observation is that a lot of the biblical material we have is, uh, so for example, and I'll see if you grant me this, but for example, I got Jesus with a bunch of blue collar fishermen. What, sure. I, what I don't have a lot of is the day in and day out conversation of blue collar fishermen. Uh, that's because that's not the point of the gospel account, right? And so I do have a lot of Jesus rebuking uh, idolaters and, and Pharisees. And so I find that coarse language from Paul rebuking uh, a false gospel in the Galatian churches and from Jesus against the Pharisees. So I, cer- I, I certainly have, agree with that being the dynamic of, of where the emphasis is in terms of uh, the, the amount of speech we hear from Jesus. Yeah, and so then, then the the question but, well, that but even that like you would, it's not like we don't have interactions between Jesus and the disciples. We have a lot of them, and a lot of times where the disciples are have some pretty foolish things to say, and it's not like he's not straightforward with them or even uh, intense. I mean, it says get behind me, Satan, to Peter. Uh, you know, James and John come with with stuff that pisses off the rest of the disciples because yeah. they're looking for they're looking for good seats next to Jesus when when he comes in his kingdom. Uh, but in the, that dynamic, you know, what does Jesus say? Well, he just, he basically gathers everyone up. He's like, hey, there's a misunderstanding here. Uh, you know, the lords of this earth, uh, the, the authority given to lords in this earth, you know, they use to, to lord over one another, to lord over other men. Uh, and, you know, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. So that's how he deals with the, the pride that was happening there. And then the anger by the other disciples at, at James and John in light of that. Ask me a question. I'm blowing smoke in your face on accident. <laughs> yeah. I, so then I would basically say, do we find uh, language func- functioning in an inflective way at all in the Bible? And I'm not expecting it to be primary because of the, basically the, the genre I've got in the Bible. I'm not expecting uh, slang to be a prominent aspect of the scriptural text. But do I find anywhere in scripture, a legitimate use of inflective language. And then, uh, if I do, uh, and it's, it's not in a, um, in a way that's presented as an example of what not to do, then I've got biblical grounds to affirm a category of speech as it functions, uh, in the world at large, right? Across languages, the existence of emphatic slang. Uh, and then I'm, I'm going from there. Okay. So I've got a legitimate category of speech 
that's part of speech that's not condemned in scripture and then do cuss words fit there or in the veneration of sin category if they fit in the inflective category dot 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 right so i'm in i'm in complete agreement on i think they do they do fall into the that category of being under inflective language and not by necessity uh glorifying sin now uh, that actually uh can depend on the the word we're talking about there's certain words i don't think necessarily need to be said or uh it's it's contextual or so it the meaning is contextual right so you can use one word in one context and it is meant to celebrate sin or make light of sin but in another uh in another context it has a whole nother meaning exactly so i'm i'm very comfortable i think we need to biblically grant that category and so then the question is uh does that apply to every category in which we would want to use inflective language or does the example we have uh do the examples we have dictate the genre of conversations in which we would use that type of inflective language because we can certainly use inflective language without using cuss words and and so well yeah yeah the question is not how large of how, how many vocabulary words fit within inflective language but is a given word inflective and then what is the category in which or what's rather what's the context in which inflective language is expected right so there's um there's some context where the use of inflective language as a point paul maxwell makes culturally signals a disregard for moral norms which is not going to be the most productive use of inflective language Right. So again, if you're using heavy slang uh, in front of grandma, for example, of whatever kind, uh, there's there's a level of linguistic properness that's expected with her that if it's not matched the, the expectation, then there is this underlining communicated thing of disregard for societal structures. And so, you know, if you're at like a, a a Thai dinner event, you know, commemorating some T-I-E, Thai. Yeah. Yeah. Then, uh, it, you know, heavy slang in one context is out of the ordinary and communicates one thing, uh, that's not communicated, let's say on a construction site. Sure. Yeah. Cause you can, you can very easily be, uh, truly disrespectful in a certain context. So I'm thinking, uh, the difference between, you know, a conversation we're having with somebody who's, uh, saying horrendous things about killing children outside of Planned Parenthood versus, you know, a debate on baptism or something like that. You know, we're not, we're not relativists. So, uh, every, every doctrine we hold is a matter of obedience. So there's, you know, not obeying is sin, right? But we have, we have different, we have categories for which we understand both of those things. And there's, I wouldn't want to be cussing at a brother over a, a brotherly debate that's a you know a secondary tertiary issue in the church i think that'd be disrespectful uh whereas you know that language would be uh appropriate in in battle contexts yeah and and also the degree to which you use inflective language i think does it, it is directly connected with you know are you talking up the social ladder down the social ladder or relatively at a peer level, right? So if, if you're talking up the social ladder, either in status or in age or whatnot, uh, 
properness of language, formality of language is expected to come as a sign of respect. Uh, and, and the same thing when you're speaking down the social ladder, there's an expectation of condescension uh, aimed at, at protecting the weak. And so again, there's a level of, a, of uh, formality of language in a different direction that's expected uh, in light of that social dynamic. But the, the more at a peer level you are and the less mixed of company you are when you're not talking about prophetic uh, denunciation of sin like Durbin was doing, but more broadly about the use of inflective language and slang, uh-huh. uh, the, the, the broader the appropriateness of slang becomes. Sure. Emphatic, inflective slang. Sure. Yeah, I, I can get on board with that. Cool. So... Again, Durbin, speaking like Ezekiel, agree? Totally agree. Cool. And even in fact, you know, for anyone who didn't see, Durbin even apologized after. I think it was, I don't, I actually don't think it was a tongue-in-cheek apology. He had another text from Ezekiel that he meant to hit, or at least he said he meant to hit in his, I take him at his word, in his speech that he didn't get to, which would have been what you were mentioning about uh, this picture of uh, Israel in their idolatry being like, uh, someone desiring uh, a donkey and the issue of a donkey within them. So again, coarse graphic language, and he he apologized for as as he's getting chastised by you know broad evangelicalism. He apologized for not going as far as he meant to and felt like he ought to. Yeah. So he he referenced in the sermon Ezekiel sixteen, but not Ezekiel twenty three, which uh, definitely when I pointed out to my middle school and high school boys got uh, some significant laughs about uh <laughs> at first i i just say hey you know if you think this text we were reading some text and they're like whoa that's in the bible i was like you think that's crazy go read ezekiel 23 and i didn't read it to them didn't tell them what was there I, you know I had this guy he's never read the bible before he's reading along in the king james and crazy enough he's able to understand the king james because at one point his head snaps up and he looks at me like you know communicating with his face i cannot believe i just read that in the bible Anyway, those are four questions, questions from listeners. We're grateful for them, grateful for your listenership. Hopefully our questions or our answers to your questions uh, were helpful, a blessing to you. If you uh, have any further clarification that you want, uh, or as the campus preacher Keith Darrell says, you know, rebukes, exhortations, reach out to us uh, either through social media or askstonemountain at gmail.com, and we will get back to you. Until then, go with God.